coming up to her death, I suppose it got easier in a way because I didn't feel, not that she wasn't listening, but I didn't feel I had to be on my guard so much because she knew a lot more than she had previously. She knew that things were really bad. So I, I feel then I was more myself than I had been at the very beginning, but still didn't make it any easier knowing that somebody you really loved was dying. Among the more painful experiences which haunt a doctor's memory are the occasions on which it has been necessary to tell a patient that his malady is fatal and that no measure of cure lies in the hand of man. Rarely indeed has such an announcement to be bluntly made, for in the face of misfortune it is merciless to blot out hope. That meagre hope, although it may be but a will-o'-the-wisp, is still a glimmer of light in the gathering gloom. Very often the evil tidings can be conveyed by the lips of a sympathetic friend. Very often the message can be worded in so elusive a manner as to plant merely a germ of doubt in the mind, which germ may slowly and almost painlessly grow into a realisation of the truth. Well, it's not the case that you have to come in looking like as if you're already at the funeral or you're um, in, in, in great state of solemnity. Um, uh, you know, if you're coming in to visit, you look bright and cheerful and, and, and sit down and be prepared to take the person where they're at. Just reach out and ask how they are and then see um, how, how, the, how they want to take it. Won't be no God to comfort you Taught me not to believe that lie You don't need anybody Nobody needs you Don't cry, oh man, don't cry Everybody dies No, they never give up hope. I've never met anyone who has who hasn't had hope right to the very end. Some of the people there who've been talking to me about counselling the dying. They include doctors, nurses and social workers, as well as some critics of current medical practice. They also include a rabbi, a farmer evangelist, a curate, a Buddhist monk and a Catholic nun. There's one book, by the way, which most of the people on this programme have mentioned to me. Written by the Chicago-based doctor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, it's called On Death and Dying. The book is about a series of special workshops which Dr Kubler-Ross held for dying patients and for their professional caretakers. It was published in 1970 and since then Kubler-Ross's descriptive analysis of the stages of dying has become the standard account. She says that most people pass through a number of clearly identifiable stages when dying. These are, first of all, denial and isolation, then anger, then bargaining, then depression, and finally acceptance. One of many people who thinks that she's basically correct is County Dublin GP Dr John Fleetwood. He has over 40 years of medical experience and has specialised in the care of the elderly. I asked him to elaborate on what to expect from someone who has learnt that they are dying. First of all, a phase of disbelief. This can't be happening to me. Oh, they must have read the wrong x-ray. I must get another blood and that'll prove they're wrong. Then you get a phase of bargaining. 
I'll go to Lourdes. I'll endow a bed in the hospital. I'll give up smoking. Some vaguely good promise to, not necessarily to God, to some outside power. An agnostic will even do this. Then a, a phase of frustration, anger. They want to lash out at this thing that is killing them. And of course they can't. So they lash out what, at anything they can get hold of. A wife, a husband, a nurse, a doctor. I've even heard a person who was very seriously ill and frustrated saying that damn fellow on the radio, why can't he stop? A man that previously he had admired very much as a broadcaster. The anger, that's a very difficult stage for the relatives particularly. We get used to it. I mean, you, you do get to the stage where, well, I don't say it's not hurtful. It can be very hurtful at times. But you look and you say, well, sure, this is part of his illness. But you have to give the relatives a huge amount of support. You have to say to the wife or the husband who has been ballyrayed, look, he's not taking it out on you because you're you. He's taking it out on you because you're the nearest thing. He'd take it out on me, on nurse, on the butcher, the baker, if they came into the room. He'd lash out at them too. That may be true, but do you think a lot of people uh, afterwards have terrible guilt because of something a dying person has said at that stage? No, not so much that, as they may have guilt if they hit back. They may say, God, the poor Diffusher, he was dying, sure. He didn't know what he was saying, and I lashed out at him. That's where you may get the guilt feelings. Then you get a phase of depression, and the depth of that depends very largely on the person's cultural and religious background. If they're very, very uh, religious person, this phase may be very short, almost non-existent. And that goes into a phase of acceptance, resignation, a gentle, usually a gentle falling asleep. I haven't seen much struggling in death. I can remember two patients who actively fought death. One was a young man. He was leaving a young family completely unprepared. He hadn't had time to take out insurances to plan anything. And the other was an elderly woman who wanted to stay alive until she could make up with her sister, whom she'd quarrelled with. And she, so help me, she did fight until that sister came and then she died. It was like something out of a, a Mills and Boone novel, but it really did happen, and I was, I was very moved and impressed by it. General practitioner John Fleetwood. On one side of the classic deathbed scene stands the doctor, on the other side a priest. Father Brian Power is a busy curate in Dunleary. On the basis of his experience, what advice would he give to someone who wanted to be helpful to a dying person? Well, first of all, I think it's very important for people to realise that even when someone can't talk, that the person doesn't like to be left alone. People who are dying usually need company. They need someone just to show interest and concern about them. So that even if there's very little else that you can do, you can at least be close. That doesn't mean you keep talking all the time. We don't usually just say to people, I mean, neither priests, I think, nor doctors, uh, by the way, you are dying and you know you're going to have six months to live. I don't think in practice 
there are doctors I have met and priests I have met who would believe they must do this. Uh, I think the important thing is just for the person to realise that uh, they could die and that it's something that's inevitably going to happen sometime, but not to be too definitive about it. I mean, ideally, we should all live with the moment of our death fairly clearly focused there some way ahead of us, you know, where we ought to think quite regularly. I think there's nothing so salutary as thinking about the shortness of human life in general, you know. And I'm sure a lot of people who've uh, become misguided and, uh, you know, just uh, totally one-dimensional in their lives, that it's because they don't realize they're going to end as they go astray. It would be much better to think, of course, that, that the state you reached after death was total, you know, annihilation, than, uh, I suppose, uh, any danger of eternal judgment or something like that. But I think that, uh, you know, for the normal Christian who has made any sort of effort, the hope of resurrection should be strong, but it probably isn't in a lot of people's minds. Uh, they prefer not to think about it too much, I think. As a nation, we're rather like that. Anyway, we <coughs> are a bit like the English, I think, myself. Uh, certainly Dublin often seems to me you know, to be very much a mirror image of English society in a lot of its attitudes. And I think, you know, it's just not done to talk about uh, death or eternity or even, you know, about religion <laughs> in, in, in ordinary sociable conversation, you know, you're, you're not supposed to talk about those things. Even in families, like there are certain subjects that are taboo, death tends to be one of them. And some people don't just avoid talking about death. They recoil in panic from anything even associated with it, as CeeLo Burke discovered when her husband got cancer. Well, I give for instance, a lady uh, asked me one time when my husband was ill, uh, how he was. She didn't, didn't know he was ill. She wanted to know if he was uh, home for Christmas because he had been in the Virgin Navy. And I said, oh, did you not know? He's very, he has been very ill. And she said, oh, nothing serious, I hope. And I said, this was in the supermarket. And I said, uh, oh, yes, he had cancer. Because through the group, we, we had learned, you know, well, talk about it, you know, just let people know what's wrong. And, you know, it kind of uh, doesn't make you feel so isolated, trying to hide things all the time. So she scratched her head and she looked around and she said, I wonder where Susan is. <laughs> I've met her since and she doesn't speak to me. But I find that very, very funny. Uh, these kind of situations. And I can understand her. It's, it's um, people don't know what to say. CeeLo Burke of the Comfort for Cancer organisation. And if there are some who cannot even bring themselves to ask after the seriously ill how much harder it must be for them to have to actually visit the dying. Dr John Fleetwood agrees that many people find such occasions awkward and embarrassing. I think that very often they do. They wonder, what am I going to say? Am I going to see some very unpleasant scene? 
Will I recognise him or her? Will they have wasted? Will they be jaundiced? Will they have big sores on their face? Or will they be sick and maybe a bad smell or something? Well, all these things have to be as far as possible overcome. And then you have to warn them just to be reasonably factual, not to be mawkishly sentimental. And if they have to say anything, either say it directly to the patient or go outside of the room if it's something they don't want them to hear. I remember one delightful thing that happened. I was asked to see this person at their own doctor's request. And I went to see them with the doctor and there was a very elderly attendant and she suddenly leaned across the bed to me and she says, Do you think she's D-Y-I-N-G? <laughs> and suddenly the patient sat up out of the bed and said, You bloody old harpy, I'll see you down, yes. <laughs> but it taught us all a lesson. We thought this patient was almost unconscious, but had heard every word. So you must be careful. If you're going to say anything, say it clearly. If you think it shouldn't be said, go out of the room well out of earshot, and then say it. But when you are talking to someone who's dying, what can you say? It's a question faced every day by Sister Josephine of the pastoral care team in Dublin's Matter Hospital. She gave up her job in an X-ray unit to work full-time as counsellor with the chaplaincy service. When I approach a patient, I would say, good morning, and how are things today? And the patient immediately starts to talk about uh, how things are going with them. Uh, about tests they were having done, and then they may get on to how they are feeling. You uh, don't you don't actually ask them though, do you? How, oh how no. they're feeling, and there's a reason for that, is there? There is, yes. Sometimes patients may not want to tell you how they're feeling today, and then if they want to, they're totally free to tell you how they're feeling. If you say how are things today, you find it's a good icebreaker, isn't I it? I think it's yeah. a good icebreaker. I do definitely. Because I think a lot of people get embarrassed or awkward that they might say the wrong thing um, to a patient who's seriously ill. And, and yes, exactly. And perhaps they don't know you that well, maybe until you have had two or three visits with them. And they've been wondering what you were like. And uh, when you say, how are things today, they can start with any subject, even the weather, you know, and go on from there then into the deepest feelings and emotions they have. I remember another uh, woman who was uh, dying of cancer and her husband was crying sitting out in the corridor and he said that his wife was crying inside and he just couldn't cope. And I said, well, why don't you go in and just put her arms around her and tell her that you love her and stay with her and hold her hand. Sister Josephine at the Matter Hospital. You might think that the doctor in charge of units for the terminally ill would make a long speech about the intricacies of caring for the dying. But Dr Jack McCarthy of Our Lady's Hospice in Harold's Cross, Dublin, doesn't believe that it's especially hard for any of us to help. If you just indicate that you're available to help and that you're prepared to do anything to help them, um, I, I, I think it'll come naturally. If you just talk to people... Allow them to talk to you, answer their questions, build up a rapport. It isn't difficult, really. But at the same time, Dr McCarthy doesn't underestimate the trauma which faces people who are admitted to the hospice in Harold's Cross. Take cancer patients, for example. In here, a patient will walk in our door and he will get progressively 
more disabled until eventually he is able to do nothing for himself. These men who walked in the door and shook hands with us now cannot, cannot eat himself. He cannot, he, he cannot make his water. His bowels cannot move without help. He can literally do nothing for himself. To keep his dignity up in that sort of situation takes a lot of support. And that is one of the things that we feel we are doing pretty well. Because to finish up completely dependent on somebody else it's, um, it's pretty shattering and it requires a lot of support to uh, make a person like that comfortable and happy in spite of the fact that they mightn't have any pain there's a terrible loss of dignity in it Our ladies' Hospice and other places do promise that there will be no physical pain associated with such deaths that's thanks to the various drugs which are available but doesn't this raise some moral questions perhaps it's only through physical suffering that people can become truly noble Dr. McCarthy does not think so. My feeling is that it, it doesn't it doesn't enrich them at all, and we we are very anti-pain and, and in in our approach. Um, the idea that pain ennobles you and strengthens you spiritually, um, that you're the better for it, is I I, I think all wrong. Pain is useful at the early stages of a disease because it indicates that the person is ill or what part should be investigated. But having done that, I think it's entirely useless. Pain doesn't make a person any more noble. It just makes them mean. It takes up an inordinate amount of their thinking. They can think about nothing else but pain and how to get rid of it their quality of life is reduced their short time that they have left is wasted because of the pain that little time that's left is very precious and there's a lot of uses that can be made of it and certainly one thing that should be absent is pain a person in pain is not a thinking proper person better off without it but if death were just a matter of sparing people physical agony, then it might not be so feared. The fact is that there's a lot more to it, of course, like emotional pain, for example. As Imelda Burke discovered when her son was dying, even the very mention of the word death can be too much to bear. Yes, I think it's a very, very hard word. Um, we didn't use it at all. Um, we were told Alan was uh, terminal. Um, we didn't really discuss that with him. We talked about when you're better and e each operation or treatment that he had, it's, well, I'm going to be better. So it wasn't really discussed. I think he would have given up, you know, had we talked about it in that light. I think he knew himself. Um, he kept a diary and it was really afterwards that we realised that he knew more than we thought he did. What about other people coming to talk to him, coming to, to visit him? I mean, they must have had a, a good idea that he was fairly ill. Did you find there was a lot of embarrassment? Yes. Terrible lot of sadness and embarrassment. And he felt more than anything that he couldn't talk to anybody because... They 
they were afraid to bring it up of course and um, he felt if he talked about it that he was looking for pity and he didn't want pity he felt terribly isolated Alan Burke's feeling of isolation seems to be quite common in such circumstances and may reflect an awkwardness on the part of visitors who simply don't know what to do and are afraid of saying the wrong thing. Sister Helena is a nurse at Our Lady's Hospice. How well does she find most people relating to someone who is dying? They don't relate very well at all. Uh, and uh, the, reason, the reason for that is um, because more often than not the patient hasn't been told what's wrong. The relatives have been, the relatives have been informed and um, try to hide it from the patient and so that they, they're not able to communicate. Certainly um, this is one of the great vexed questions of medicine, the how much to tell the dying uh, and uh, many would feel that um, telling them in a, a in a blunt and over truthful fashion and uh, would remove uh, and mean the abandonment of hope and uh, as our main role is uh, particularly doctors and the caring be their relatives is in a healing role this would be very regrettable because we've all seen people who were told prematurely uh, are into uh, straightforward a fashion decline very rapidly and uh, um, uh, almost shrivel away to death, turn their face to the wall and uh, this is a, an appalling happening. Dr Dennis Keating, consultant at St Vincent's Hospital Dublin, he specialises in looking after the old. I put it to him that you do hear complaints about doctors not giving people enough information, that they never answer questions for example, or that they won't tell people exactly what is wrong with them. Well, uh, medicine is increasingly complex and as we understand more and more about illness and pathology, um, it is very difficult to simplify in terms of the, uh, the um, particular disease entity which is uh, bringing about the death of the patient. And uh, so it's time consuming to uh, explain to the patient but, and sometimes this may be one of the reasons why it's not done uh, I, I'm not excusing this but uh, to make it understandable and simple uh, what is happening and what the disease process is and it's likely uh, severity and outcome and what will be experienced during its course is a, a, a special skill and uh, this is a skill in communication. Now, very many people do not want to know detail about illness and uh, about the likelihood of death and avoid it, but they will not blame themselves. They will blame the fact that they were not told, uh, though they never sought the information in the first place. But one support group at least, the Comfort for Cancer organisation, doesn't appear satisfied with the medical profession's response to serious illness. Most certainly not. All of the members, practically all the members feel that their doctors have been less than honest with them, that they ask them questions, intelligent questions, they don't get intelligent answers, they're treated like um, people who haven't got much intelligence, uh, as though their bodies don't belong to them, 
and that they don't have the right to ask questions. And I feel that the day our group is not needed anymore, that's the day that doctors will be treating the whole person, not just a condition. Well, I think really what brought it home to me was when my husband was ill and I heard a young doctor say, he wasn't, uh, he, he, he was still studying, he, wa he, he wasn't fully qualified in the field he had chosen. <coughs> but he said that he hoped he lived to see the day when hospitals were geared for patients and not for specialists. The, more the, the one thing I think that people can cope with is uncertainty. And the certainty is a, an easier thing to cope with. Even if the prognosis is bad, they still prefer to know, well, am I going to live or am I going to die? What is the uncertainty that's terrible? Do you not think certainty can extinguish hope? Uh, no, I don't think so. Comfort for Cancer spokesperson Cedo Burke. The group meets, by the way, on the first Friday evening of each month in St Anne's Parish Hall, Molesworth Street, Dublin. Someone else who's seen times when it helps to have everything out in the open is social worker Delmo Regan. I know um, many instances where the person who's dying has told um, the relatives what kind of funeral they want and what arrangements they want made about various things. And the family have felt greatly relieved when when after the person dies, they know exactly what they want to do and what, what, what's to be planned and feel good and right about it because, um, because they know that that was what they are fulfilling, what, what the person who's died wanted. But perhaps there are those who, in the end of the day, really don't want to express their needs in so many words. Father Brian Power, for one, wouldn't suggest that just because you don't talk about dying means that somehow your death is inferior. No, I wouldn't let you draw that conclusion. I think it could be very rich, of course, for people to experience someone you know, who is both uh, able to express and also very spiritual. It could be very rich to know someone like that and to participate in that person's own conquest of death, because that's what it is, you know. I think that can be a, a very rich experience for those who, ex who actually experience it and see it. But I wouldn't draw the conclusion that uh, someone who dies, you know, uh, without ever really discussing it, hasn't achieved maybe a lot internally and through their own way of expressing themselves to others, hasn't maybe helped others too around them. Last year, student Cleano Flynn sat by the bedside of her best friend. Night after night, she watched her waste away from leukaemia. They didn't mention the fact that she was dying until near the very end and Cleona still feels that to have done so sooner would have been the wrong thing. I think it would have. Knowing Cathy, um, she didn't want to die. Is one of the things she said to me very near the time she died, which was very upsetting, because she just got engaged. And she, one day she said to me that it was unfair. She didn't want to die, and at that stage I knew that she knew. But before that, when she was still chatty and talking, and she even came home for a while, she wouldn't have liked people to be talking to her as if, or not so much as if, but knowing that she was going to die in a few months, so almost saying their last words to her, she would have hated that. And I don't think people did that. Anyone who knew her as well as we did knew 
how she would react to something that all, that sick almost. You just tried, you, you were as natural because she was being totally natural about the whole thing and that helped you. I mean, she almost helped us rather than us helping her. And helping people to communicate is the job of Christy Keneally. He's brought in by health boards to advise their professional staff about counselling the dying. With the continuing trends towards hospital care and away from deaths at home, Christy Keneally thinks that we must be careful not to lose sight of some basic priorities. At the moment, the care of the dying and the care of the sick, generally speaking, it's all a case of being done for. Eliza Doolittle says there's them that does and them that's done to. Well, there are certainly them that's done to. And they're expected literally to lie there. Rarely are they told anything about their condition. Rarely are they treated as rational, intelligent human beings who might have an opinion about this. Uh, what I'm talking about is it's time that there was complementarity. It's time there was teamwork involved here. And teamwork means not only the patient and the doctor, which is the obvious team, but also involves the family. At the moment in the hospice, St. Christopher's Hospice in England, they define the unit of care when they're speaking of the terminally ill as the patient and the family. They make no distinction between them. But you and I know that the general practice is that I give you my da if you're running the hospital. You then allow me in to see him when it suits you and your institution. Mm. I become a visitor. I become the spectator of my father's care. I would love to see neighbours coming back into their own, friends coming back into their own, and stop all this codology about, oh God, I'd love to visit John, but I wouldn't know what to say. You don't have to have a diploma to go up and visit a friend in hospital, or a neighbour who has cancer, or a, a, an aunt or an uncle who is dying. You just need to have the proper connection, which is a belly button connection, really, which is ordinary humanity connection. And I think to work on that level is probably the kind of nourishing communication that most people need and yet you put your finger on on, on the button uh, it, it is uh, that people feel they don't know what to say to someone who's dying very much so and when people say that to me what should I say I, I, I sometimes reply to them and say what you say is the least important thing in the name of God what do we say at funerals we say I'm sorry for your trouble which is a harmless kind of a remark we say worse we say isn't he better off in other words, tell me life you had with you, you're better off dead. You know, what we say is so innocuous and banal and useless. I think, without being too kind of lyrical about it, it's who we are. It's who we are. It's what the relationship is. It's what your attitude is going into the room. If your attitude is this person is dying, everything you say and do from the minute you put your foot into the room says to the person you are dying. You know, and that's what you're communicating to the person. If your attitude is, this, this is the person like myself, this is the person who is in crisis, this is the person who needs to be supported humanly through this crisis, then it takes the onus off you in trying to be a miracle worker, in trying to have all the answers, in trying to plumb the depths of philosophical questions like why me and all of that. You don't have to and you're not expected to. Do you not think the dying person expects you to talk a bit about the fact that they are dying? Very much so, very much so, but... That person will never talk to me on any kind of decent level unless I have filled in the rubble in the foundation of the relationship. And the rubble is small talk. The rubble is normal talk. It's hurling talk, football talk, baby's talk, patterns talk, any kind of talk that's filled in, which means I have to come often and regularly so that that person can build up an identical picture of me. And over a period of time, a trust is built. A bridge is literally built. When you're weary Feeling small When 
One special source of comfort is the family, and it has a particular role in Jewish culture. Does this mean that Chief Rabbi David Rosen is more inclined to encourage people to let family members die at home rather than send them to hospital? Well, certainly Judaism places an enormous emphasis upon family units. Some people would say even an obsessive emphasis upon it. I mean, the whole of Jewish life revolves around the family unit, and the family is the centre of Jewish life, not the synagogue. Synagogue is very secondary, if not even tertiary, within um, Jewish life. Uh, and therefore, the fifth commandment of the Decalogue has particular importance within Jewish tradition and is explained and understood to have practical ramifications of particular responsibility of children to care for the physical needs of their parents. So if we're dealing in relation, let us say, to the dying parent, then Judaism would certainly feel, uh, certainly place, if you like, a, a, a heavy responsibility upon children to be able to provide for those needs, but recognizes fully of both the physical and mental pressures that are involved that sometimes preclude the family from being able to handle it, and in such case we consider it to be necessary to be able to um, to extend the context of care for the dying into the um, more medical and uh, psychiatric arenas, which perhaps often means the individual moving away from the family context. There is no con concept, first of all, of original sin and therefore no fundamental need to see the human being as requiring redemption or to enter into that such a state of grace. Um, but obviously, while there is a need to repent of one's sins, as it were, in other words, to, um, to prepare oneself for one's spiritual destiny, um, nevertheless, this is ultimately rests with the individual and not with anybody else. So the need to have a rabbi there at the point in the time of death is not an obligatory necessity in Judaism. Of course, there are people who reject the consolations of religion. Their doubts turn to disbelief. And for some, like the followers of Karl Marx, that disbelief hardens into a conviction that death is the end and that we might as well face it. 
Michael O'Reardon of the Irish Communist Party. If I knew I was dying, that uh, I would be uh, turning up to do some things that I had left unfinished. Uh, in that sense, and if I couldn't physically do them, well then I would probably spend some time thinking about what I had done. I'd probably be regretful that I hadn't done enough in such a direction or another direction, but I would feel that uh, the, the sense of uh, man's immortality lives, in, lives on in life and what he's been doing in life and life will succeed him, and life will go on, and life perhaps will remember his little contribution to the positive fashion uh, of life in the sense of serving human beings. strong enough that uh, uh, we won't be, as the saying says, be roaring and bawling for a place when we're dying. Uh, I think we'll be, as I've already said, uh, contemplating and trying to do to the last breath what we could possibly do, and we're doing at the present time, motivated by a desire to self humanity. But not everyone's faith is strong to the bitter end, and even some atheists have been known to have deathbed conversions. Does the last-minute turning have any religious value, though? Victor Evans is a farmer evangelist in County Wicklow. He gets called out regularly to comfort the dying. Isn't it a bit late in the day, then, for people to be consoled by the thoughts of salvation if they've ignored it all their lives? It is, of course. But then, while that's very true, uh, at the last lap, we always get consolation from the crucifixion because there were two thieves and one said Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and Jesus said today thou shalt be with me in paradise there was nothing he could do but accept and of course that must have given that man assurance on the other hand the other thief he didn't accept and there again I believe that's the two thieves it's for two reasons. One was lost, that we might not presume. The other was saved, that we might not despair. Farmer evangelist Victor Evans. Only four years ago, he lost his own daughter prematurely. The mother of a family, she died aged 31. Did his years of counselling serve him well then? Or are there some things you can only learn by bitter experience? Well, at that particular time when my daughter passed away, or should I say before it, it was a great joy to be able to pray with her and talk with her, and uh, knowing, of course, that she had, as a child, accepted Christ. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been easy even to accept the fact that uh, she ha was going so quickly into eternity. But my own eldest son had led her to the Lord when she was about five, and from that time she knew, although I'm quite sure, like myself, she didn't know the call was going to come just so soon. But she had real assurance. And her hobby used to read practically every night Psalm 23 to her, which was a great comfort to her. 
it's very hard to know it, to what to say, particularly to somebody younger, whatever about someone who's lived out their life, to, to know it what to say to somebody in mm. the face of death, isn't it? It's very difficult because a young person will often say, well, why did God do it to me? I'm, I'm my own grandson, one of them said, after my daughter passed away, he said uh, to his other granny, why did the Lord take Mammy? And the granny said, because he needed her. But he said, I needed her too. Earlier I mentioned the widely acclaimed book on death and dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You can buy a paperback edition for about £5. Dr Kubler-Ross has worked alongside a number of different people in her attempts to find and bring enlightenment to the challenge of death. One of those people is Buddhist monk Sogyal Rinpoche. A refugee from the Chinese invasion of Tibet, Sogyal Rinpoche brings the insights of a respected and ancient culture to bear on the subject. First and the most important thing is to give love and to give your love, utmost love. And suppose uh, the dying person is a Christian practitioner, which uh, probably the normal case it is, uh, uh, then you can ask them to visualize uh, instead of Buddha, you can think of Christ in the form of resurrect form, in the form of night. And then surrender your soul into his being and ask first for forgiveness for all the sins and to also consider that the, you receive that kind of a, his absolution, his forgiveness. Now, in the case of someone who is not a practitioner, not particularly uh, with a Christian practitioner, maybe you could just offer uh, whatever they believe in the truth is or God is or I don't know in the form of light and just surrender your consciousness to that and if they're not even willing to do that maybe you could just ask them to uh, not to have attachment just to occupy their mind with more with goodness and with compassion and with love the sun may be shining outside but if the curtains are closed sun won't come in you have to open the curtain then the sun will shine in 